There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast and welcome to 2022. Greg, it's 2022. It is. And are we talking 2022 or 2020? As well? Or also? Also? No, it's 2022. Like the number. It's starting to feel kind of like 2020 also. I know. It definitely feels like the last two years haven't moved that much. Although there have been a number of changes, like we're recording not together today for the first time in quite a while as we have a little bout of, I don't know, COVID in our household. So that's changed from two years ago for us. But true. anyways, we're just adapting, right? Well, that's right. And if anything, the last two years has taught us that you can adapt and business and life can go on even with some of these unfortunate restrictions that we've had to live with. For sure. The one upside to this, we've got a quarantine situation in our house, is they did just change the rules from 14 days to five days as of just a few days ago. So things are adapting all the time. Yep, exactly. But today, Greg, we're not here to talk about COVID and quarantines. We're here to talk about the outlook for the next 12 months as all of the lists have come out or they're coming out, the list being from all of the investment banks and, I don't know, market participants, prognosticators. They're saying what predictions are out there for this year ahead. So this is that time of year when we like to look at that. Well, we do. And I think we want to look at it from a couple of standpoints. But the main standpoint is when you look at these predictions or forecasts for the upcoming year, the question always will be, well, what do you do about it? There's one thing about making predictions, as best anyone can. There's another thing is, well, how does that change or should that change what you actually do with that information that comes from all numbers of different sources, some very credible firms or individuals who publish these forecasts and others from other people not so well educated or informed. And before we get into it, I just want to make one disclaimer, and that is that Colin, if we talk about an outlook for the S&P 500 or for the U.S. market or name any individual stock, are we recommending that people act on that information specifically? Never, never. Never. No, we are not. We are just using this as, I don't know, evidence from other people of what they're saying. That's right. I do want to make it clear that, first of all, as always, if any individual stock is mentioned during this podcast... We're not recommending that people buy it. It's not a recommendation, and that's not the purpose of this podcast. Likewise, if one of the firms that we reference has put out a bullish forecast for stocks for next year, does that mean we're telling people they should take more risk and buy more stocks? No, not at all. No. Those kinds of decisions can only be made with your investment advisor and with the benefit of a financial plan and a very clear identification of what goals are set. So again, strictly for information and entertainment, if you will, 
And as always, these are not specific recommendations. So having got that out of the way, shall we dive in? They're not specific recommendations from us, but there are analysts that are paid to put out these reports. That's their job. Exactly. And it's not that they're not doing good work to create these lists. They have all kinds of financial modeling tools that they use to come up with where the market will go and what stocks to buy based off of whatever valuations. But So we're not trying to minimize the work that those people are doing either, right, Greg? Absolutely not. These are highly educated people in many cases and have a raft of information available to them. And I think what we'll do is let's see what people are saying and see if we can find some sort of consensus. Okay, well, let's start with a baseline. So as we are recording today, we're going to refer to the market as being the S&P 500. Not because it's the only market. It's just that a lot of the predictions that we're going to be talking about are based off of the S&P 500. And today, the S&P 500 is showing a value of 4,777. So let's see what the experts think the market, that being the S&P 500, will do over the next 12 months. So Greg, there was an article put out by Seeking Alpha just this last week. It was actually a really good article. In it, they talked about two different opposing views from two different investment firms, one having a very bullish outlook and one having a very bearish outlook on the same market. But the summary of it was that The biggest problem with Wall Street, both today and in the past, is the consistent disregard of the unexpected and random events that inevitably occur. Okay, well, yeah, random events always occur. That's why they're called random. Exactly. Like I didn't plan on doing this podcast from home until my son randomly tested positive for COVID. These are random. The other one was U.S. equities currently trade at a record valuation premium to global peers. So this is true. U.S. equities are extremely high based on where they've been in the past. And the markets can defy logic, fundamentals, and reality in the very short term. And this is also true. You see it when the market moves either upward quickly or downward quickly based on something that's happening or happened. It's not always logical. That's right. Or it doesn't seem logical on the surface. And we've seen that in many periods over the last 25, 30 years. It probably seems logical after the fact when you have more facts and you're looking back. So this article, as I mentioned, is very good, but it talks about the accuracy of predictions. So that's how the article starts. And it talks about how predictions, there was a study on predictions and how they come from various professions, including psychics and meteorologists. And the study came to two conclusions. They're very interesting. Number one, meteorologists are the most accurate predictors of the future. That makes kind of sense. It does, yeah. And number two, the predictive ability was accurate to just three days. So they're the most accurate predictors, but they're only able to have a predictive ability of maybe three days. So I don't know. It doesn't seem that great. It's kind of like flipping a coin. That's right. You mentioned models earlier. I mean, meteorologists sort of base their predictions on models. Models are only good for a certain period of time, and you can't model everything, whether it's weather or anything else. Exactly. And of course, we don't hold meteorologists to their predictions for the weather for tomorrow. We look at it because we want to see, but if it were to be different, it's not like we would say they need to be fired. Well, and not only that, the interesting thing is when you think about it, we make decisions based on the short term. So I guess many of us probably know that in general, Tomorrow's weather forecast is probably pretty accurate, but we wouldn't make dramatic changes to plans 
based on a forecast for what the weather is going to be like two weeks from now. Well, and this article talks about it as stock picking being like weather forecasting. And now I'm quoting the article is essentially an exercise in futility. So that's something that we've talked about in the past that it's just, it's really hard because markets are affected by such a broad spectrum of things from economics to geopolitics, monetary policy, rates, financial events. And so taking any prediction with a very high degree of skepticism is probably the best thing to do. Right on. If somebody says, oh yeah, for sure, the market's going to go up 10% in the next 12 months. I would be pretty skeptical of that. So the two opposing views that we want to talk about in this article come from Goldman Sachs and from Morgan Stanley. Greg, maybe tell us, what does Goldman Sachs say the market's going to do over the next 12 months? What's interesting is Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, of course, are two of the largest investment firms in the US with long, long histories. And so it's interesting when you see something opposing. So Goldman Sachs, they tend to be bullish a lot of the time, pretty consistent. And typically, you don't see them coming out with non-bullish forecasts for the upcoming year. Listen, the market is positive, and you and I have talked about this a lot. The market is generally positive more often than it's negative. So it generally pays to be bullish when you're dealing with investors, and not only that, in many cases, offering your own products to investors. So being bullish kind of makes sense because you expect the markets to be positive two-thirds of the time. And now Goldman Sachs, of course, one thing about being bullish all the time is you can be wrong when it really hurts. So if you look at periods like 2000, when the tech bubble burst and stocks, just broad index stocks were down 50% from 2000 to 2002. And also in 2008, when again, the bear market of the global financial crisis also sent stocks down 50% from their highs. So that's a pretty important time. And going into that, they were quite bullish. Well, But Greg, there's no way that in 2007, leading into 2008, they had a bearish report out there anywhere to that effect. Nobody said that's right. the market's going to go down 50% over the next 12 months. No, exactly right. There were some warning signs in the real estate market, of course, but nothing that sort of affected the broad market. So this year, Goldman Sachs chief equity strategist, a guy by the name of David Costin, forecasted the S&P 500 will climb 9% from that point to 5,100 at the year end of 2022. From the time that was written, that would be a 10% increase on the S&P 500 for the year. Okay. So plus 10. Plus 10. That sounds good. Here's something interesting. The climb will be in face of decelerating economic growth, a tightening Fed, which means the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, and rising real yields suggest investors should expect modestly below average returns next year. So saying despite predicting the S&P 500 up 10%, investors should expect modestly below average returns. Well, that doesn't make sense. It seems like returns of the last several years, 27% or 26% this past year and 20% the year before, it seems like that has become what people now consider average returns. And we, of course, know that going back 100 years of stock market returns, the average is really more like 8%. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, if they're predicting a 9 or 10% increase, that's actually slightly above the long-term average of the S&P 500. Exactly. But then they're talking about how investors should expect modestly below average returns. So which time period are they talking about? Well, that's right. Just to finish off on Goldman Sachs, though, he estimates that despite a slowing economy, rising yields and tightening monetary supply, that earnings growth 
which accounted for the entire S&P 500 return in 2021, will continue to drive gains in 2022. And so the basis for Goldman Sachs' bullish view on the S&P 500 is rising earnings growth despite all of these negative economic headwinds. Greg, I don't want to get negative here, but how do you have rising earnings growth during periods of negative economic issues? I don't get it. It's a good question. And as we've said before, only time will tell. But let's talk about what's Morgan Stanley say about the outlook. Well, Morgan Stanley takes the bearish view. They're saying that the market is going to fall by about 8% this next 12 months. So they're saying the S&P is going to close somewhere around 4,400 points. Those are completely opposite predictions. Yes, they are. One's up 10%, one's down almost 10% in the same 12-month period. Now, the three main causes for the prediction of a lower market actually go to what you just talked about, earnings uncertainty and how they expect earnings growth to be weaker in 2022 because of supply chain issues and some tax and policy uncertainty. So that's interesting. They also talk about premium valuation. So the S&P remains at a premium with current price earnings multiple of about 21 times earnings. And they think that that is probably high. They also talk about higher real bond yields. And that's something we've talked about. Like there's a difference between interest rates and the real interest rate. When they talk about like the 10-year US Treasury that's the real rate. That's what the market applies. It's not what the Federal Reserve applies. Anyways, those are the three main predictions or main drivers of the prediction. The question is, between the two, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, I don't know, will either of them be right? Who knows? They might be. What usually happens when you read these kinds of things, because these are both very highly credible sources of information, is, well, who will be correct? What do you do about it? And the answer in many cases is all you can do is really look at the risks to both of their views. They agree on certain things. They agree that there's the possibility of higher interest rates and higher real bond yields. They probably both agree that valuations are currently historically high. Doesn't mean they're going to change anytime soon, but that's just a fact. They only differ on their outlook for earnings. Of course, earnings are very difficult to predict because there's so many things that could affect earnings. And so what do you do? Well, we'll talk about that in the end. What do we do with these kinds of predictions? They do have a quote in there from Robert Rubin, previously US Secretary of the Treasury and Goldman Sachs executive. And I want to read this quote. First, the only certainty is that there is no certainty. Second, every decision as a consequence is a matter of weighing probabilities. Third, despite uncertainty, we must decide and we must act. And lastly, we need to judge decisions not only on the results, but on how they were made. It's a pretty good quote. That is a good quote. And it really highlights some of the things we've talked about in the past around probability. We don't build portfolios based on any kind of certainty about what's going to happen in the future. And that's why we build portfolios the way we do. Because there is a level of uncertainty, whether it's about the stock market, about the bond market. And so we make decisions. Well, then I like the last comment he makes. We need to judge decisions not only by the results, but by how they were made. If you made a good decision, then whether or not things turned out the way you wanted is not really the point. You're using the best information you have at the time. 
It's always funny to me when after the fact of a major event, somebody will say something like, oh, but we saw that coming. It's like, well, no, you didn't. Otherwise, you would have made a different decision at the time. That's right. So the article, it's a well-written article. I actually really like it. And it talks about just really how hard it is to predict market outcomes. Now, one thing that I will take issue with in the article is it talks about owning well-selected, fundamentally cheap companies and how that makes sense. My question is, well, who is selecting what a well-selected, fundamentally cheap company is? Like, who establishes this and how? And aren't they just using the price and size premiums from the Fama French factor models when they're discussing this? That's right. And one of the things that in a lot of the articles I've read with regards to the predictions for the markets this coming year is a lot of the analysts or companies are saying, this is going to be a stock picker's market. And basically, they say that every year. And the reason why they say that is because in certain years, well, in most years, like last year, just by owning the index or stocks that reflect the broad market and not any individual stocks, you can get a really tremendously positive outcome. So last year, just owning the S&P 500, you made 26%. And as we've talked last time, a lot of individual companies or stock pickers picked their top 10 or their top 20 favorite stocks and ended up with a more highly concentrated, risky portfolio that still didn't do any better than the market. And so what happens is then we'll look back and say, okay, well, that was a good year just to be in the index, but this year is going to be different. It's a stock pickers market. And the interesting thing is that, okay, well, let's say, does that mean that the stock pickers last year who didn't do better than the market are suddenly smarter this year? Why would they do better this year than they did last year? What is it about the market this year that's going to make stock picking more successful than it was in the past? And I think that's one of those types of comments that is certainly out there to justify picking a handful of stocks or a concentrated portfolio of stocks, but it doesn't really make sense when you look at the basis for that. Now, our last episode, we did spend a bit of time on hits and misses from the last year in talking about how things did or didn't work out. But let's look at Forbes, just to carry on this conversation of outlooks for the next 12 months. Forbes had a 2022 stock market outlook in which they have data from Wells Fargo, FactSet, US Bank, Charles Schwab. Now, let's just compare those to what Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley already said. Goldman Sachs was very bullish. Morgan Stanley was very bearish. Well, Wells Fargo was actually more bullish. They're saying that the S&P 500 could hit 5,300 points. That's a pretty big number. That'd be awesome. Compare that to FactSet, which is just a group of analysts who cover individual stocks with a similarly optimistic outlook, and they see the S&P 500 hitting 52.25. Greg, I would argue that 52.25 is 5,300. Like that's the same number. That's a very specific number, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Like why not 52.26? Anyways, then we have US Bank, which also has a bullish outlook and says that the index is going to reach 5,060 points. Bullish again. And then we have Charles Schwab, who doesn't give a specific forecast on or price target for the S&P 500, but it just gives a, I don't know, a qualitative forecast. It says, and I quote, potential for a good year. (laughs) Not very technical. No. Maybe they're trying to hedge their bets. And as you read further, potential for a good year, albeit 
with a decent risk of weakness as market participants account for Fed policy changes. So potential for a good year, but with a decent risk of weakness. <laughs> Talk about being non-committal on that one. That's that cautiously optimistic outlook that you always hear from people. That I know it drives you crazy. It drives me crazy too. Like, What is cautiously optimistic? You're either optimistic or you're not. It's very non-committal. <laughs> exactly. And the interesting thing is those kinds of forecasts are really don't make any changes kind of forecasts. It's kind of like, okay, well, we're not saying it's going to be a blowout year for stocks, so we don't want to see people taking on more equity risk, but we're not saying it's going to be terrible, so don't sell what you're holding, so just kind of stay put, which is fine with me, by the way. <laughs> and they do talk a lot about inflation as being a key to any change in the outlook. And there's a quote in the article that cracks me up. It's, by mid-year, we should know what the level of inflation is, and that will set the tone for the second half of the year. That's not really <laughs> that's not really saying much. It's saying like halfway through the year, we'll see what's occurred, and that'll, I don't know, let us figure out what the next half of the year will look like. That's not really saying a whole lot, Greg. It's kind of the same as saying, well, let's see what company earnings are like mid-year, and that'll help us identify how the year is going to finish out. So kind of like when we have the information, we'll know for sure. I want to do a quick look back. I know we only got a few minutes left here, Greg. A quick look back. I know that there's a guy out there named Jim Cramer, and I'm not promoting him or slagging him. He's just a person out there that people follow on, is it CNBC? That he's on? CNBC, that's correct. And again, we're not promoting or not promoting him, but he is well followed. And he came out with this list last year, so this December of 2020, and it was a list of stocks to purchase for 2021. And he suggested that people own five specific companies. They were Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, or Alphabet. Greg, over the last 12 months, those five stocks had an average return of 26.8%. And the S&P 500 did 26.6%. So I would argue that if you held 500 stocks, you had less volatility than if you held five, but that's just my own opinion. And you ended up with basically the same return. Now in his comments, I want to quote this because he says, I'm so sick of hearing that it's time to rotate into the oils. That was a year ago. December of 2020. December of 2021, he came out with a similar list and I won't bore you with the names. It's basically just highlighting the best performing companies from the last year. And his comments were, the biggest takeaway should be the remarkable resurgence of the oils. <laughs> so a year before, he was sick and tired of hearing about how oils were going to resurge, so to speak. And this year, the biggest takeaway should be the remarkable resurgence of oils. I'm not trying to make fun of it or anything. Well, maybe I am, but it's just another point on... These lists are only as good as they are. I think more importantly, Greg, let's wrap up this episode with our forecasts of what people should do in regards to these lists. And I think that for me, any of these forecasts could be right. Goldman Sachs could be right. And earnings growth will continue strongly as it did in 2021. And we'll see the S&P 500 up by 9%. Or Morgan Stanley could be right and earnings uncertainty and maybe trending weaker from 2021 will actually result in the S&P 500 being lower by 8% or 5% from today. Or any of these other 
forecasts you mentioned, whether it's Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank, or Charles Schwab? I think the answer is, okay, well, given that we have a number of different forecasts and we have no expectation as to which one of those forecasters is most prescient or most well-positioned, then what do we do? And I think in the end, what we do is we say, well, look, we need to build a portfolio that will capitalize on whatever growth might actually come from the markets. And now we're talking about not just the U.S. market, of course, but global stock markets. And that actually somehow positions the portfolio to deal with the risk that might come from maybe some of these negative, if the more bearish outlooks turn out to be the correct ones. So what do we do? I guess the answer is we do what we always do. We start with an analysis of our individuals' financial plans, retirement plans, estate plans. What are their goals? What are their financial goals? What's their current financial position? And what do they need to do to achieve those goals and build a portfolio accordingly? So boring. I know. I know. It's like a broken record. You know what? I'm not going to hold you to it, but just for fun, why don't we give our own, I don't know, estimate of what the S&P 500 will do over the next 12 months, just for fun. All right. What do you think? Well, I think if it's not down, then it'll likely be up, (laughs) barring it finishing the year flat as to where it started. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's up at the end of the year. Are you? Yeah. I'm going to say it's up only from a probability perspective, because as we know, what is it like 70% of the years are up years? So two thirds of the time the market finishes up. Yep. Now up can be very relative. It could be like 0.01% or 26% or somewhere in between. I'm not going to go any further than just to say it's up. I'm like Charles Schwab because that's basically what Charles Schwab said. It's going to be probably a decent year unless it's not. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to have that level of commitment. (laughs) (laughs) I will though say with certainty what people should do during the year, regardless of what's happening in the market is rebalance your portfolios. So you have no idea, no control over the direction at any time of what the market will do or where it's going, but you can control your exposure to the market. Exactly. If you've set a tactical asset allocation of some amount in bonds and some amount in stocks, just make sure you're rebalancing regularly. It'll get rid of all that noise of market timing. Well, that's right. Just to explain it a little bit further, if you have a portfolio that has 50% in stocks and 50% in bonds, if that's the appropriate portfolio for you, and we go through a negative period for stocks, then you will end up owning more bonds on a relative basis. You might end up owning 55% bonds and just 45% stocks. And just the rebalancing process helps you to buy low and sell high. You'll be selling your bonds, 5% of them, which would have had positive relative performance to stocks because stocks were down. And you'll be buying 5% more of stocks, which are at lower prices because the market has declined. And so the rebalancing process actually takes a lot of that, as you say, that market timing decision out of the way. Because you don't need to say, gee, is this a good time to buy stocks? Maybe they'll go down further. That's not the question. The question is, is my portfolio in balance relative to my strategic asset allocation? And if the answer is no, then your decision is to rebalance back to your strategic allocation, not to buy stocks because they're cheap. It just so happens that by doing that, you are buying stocks when they're cheap, and that's what everyone tries to do. It takes all of that guesswork out. 
it takes all of the need for making predictions out of the picture. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Well, maybe we should wrap it up there, Greg. Sure. This is, again, our 2022 inaugural episode, and we're looking forward to having lots more things to discuss in our next 50 podcasts in 2022. Exactly. All right. Well, next time we'll be talking about something even more interesting, I'm sure. Sounds great. (laughs) Okay. Till next time. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.